we're tricking the brain into, even if you're stressed, you can trick the brain into thinking that everything is all right by simply changing your breathing patterns. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Foster, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Patrick McEwen, who is the author of The Oxygen Advantage, an absolutely brilliant book. If you haven't read it, all about breathwork and how to improve um, oxygen saturation, among many other things. Welcome to the show, Patrick. It's great to have you here. Great. Thanks very much, Angela. Um, so to kind of kick off, let's start with how you got into breathwork um, originally. I know that you had a history with childhood asthma, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain a bit more just for the listeners about your background? Yeah, I suppose I came across it accidentally. Breathing never was getting much attention. And doctors don't typically advise their patients whether to breathe through the mouth or through their nose. Or as, According to a doctor, it doesn't really make any difference whether you breathe through your nose or mouth. As a child growing up, I had constant nasal obstruction, and uh, it's, it's common enough with asthma because if you have inflammation of your lungs, it travels up to your nose, so your nose is stuffy. And um, the problem with a stuffy nose is that it's not just having a stuffy nose. If you have a stuffy nose, your sleep is impacted, and you're more likely to be tired. And also because of a stuffy nose, you're more likely to persistently breathe through an open mouth, and then that activates a fight-or-flight response. So culminating with asthma, with breathing problems, you're also tired, and I was also more stressed. And uh, my breathing was always faster. My heart rate, I remember when I started doing this program, I was monitoring my heart rate. My resting heart rate was 80 beats per minute, and that was in my early 20s. So oh. clearly there was something going on. And uh, despite, you know, despite taking many, many medications for asthma and number of hospitalizations, it always seemed to be getting progressively worse. Nothing seemed to get her under control. Um, more medications would get her under control, but after a time, then I need more medication. So I came across breathing through the nose. It was a newspaper article. I practiced the nose unblocking exercise, which, by the way, has been around since 1923. None of this information is new. The importance of breathing through the nose isn't new. Um, you know, I've seen it in some journals dating back to 1909, and it's even going well before that as well. So. Short story, I, my original background is economics and uh, social sciences from a university in Dublin called Trinity College in Dublin. I was in the corporate world and uh, just to talk him into my head one day, I was driving from Galway on the, east, on the west coast of Ireland to the east coast of Ireland and I just had a good feeling that I wanted to teach breathing and that was it. I changed careers. Wow. That's, that's that simple, almost like a calling. So yeah, well, it was just, it was something that I felt that it felt the right thing to do, even though logically it didn't make any sense because I was leaving a corporate world. Uh, I was leaving, working with staff underneath me, corporate car, et cetera, all of, all of the bells and whistles that come and the stress, of course. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, a company that literally owns, owns you. Um, so I suppose in some ways, I was kind of sick with the job I was in anyway. So, <laughs> so when you have an idea that there's something, something better. And also I felt, I never knew what I really wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to work in a bank. I didn't want to work in an insurance company. I didn't want to work in an accountancy firm. I, but I wasn't sure. And I certainly didn't want to work in sales because it's not me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes, you know, kind of life directs you in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And now you pretty much, I mean, before lockdown, travel the world, teaching people how to breathe correctly. Um, to get started, because there's, there's, there are so many questions here that I have for you today, and mm-hmm. I know are going to really interest the listeners. So let, let's talk, you touched there on unblocking your nose, because I think this is a common misconception. So people that are struggling to breathe through their nose automatically then breathe mo- more through their mouth, and then they feel they've got an even more stuffy nose, and they're like, well, h- how can I begin? How can I even start to breathe through my nose when it's so blocked up? Can you explain how to unblock the nose, first of all? Yeah, anytime you hold your breath, you, you open up your nose. And the best way to hold your breath is to breathe out through your nose, or if you can't breathe out through your nose, breathe out through your mouth and hold your breath. In other words, exhale first and then hold the breath. Don't do it if you're pregnant. Don't do it if you've got serious health issues. Mm -hmm. But uh, you could easily do it, even just walking on the spot. Take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose. You pinch your nose and you walk on the spot and keep walking and holding your breath until you feel a fairly strong air hunger or at least a medium to strong air hunger, then let go, breathe in through your nose, wait 30 seconds to a minute, repeat, do it five or six times and your nose will start to open up. Amazing. What a simple technique. Simple. And the other thing is, the more you breathe through your nose, Angela, the more it works. We know that if you can continuously breathe through an open mouth, your nose will never address itself. And the ironic thing about the nose is that if you treat your nose and you get nasal steroids or you have a nasal operation, it doesn't necessarily mean that the individual switches to nasal breathing. So there's two aspects to switching to nose breathing. One is addressing the obstruction of the nose, but the second one is changing the behavior. Mm. So just by decongesting your nose doesn't mean that you switch to it. But I think like if we look at the anatomy of the nose versus the mouth, here is an anatomical model of the nose. And just by even looking at that, if you see, so you see the lips here, you see the nose, so people will have an idea of what they're looking at. And here you have your tongue. So if you take air in through your mouth, literally that air goes straight down your throat and no humidification, no moistening, no regulation of volume, no nitric oxide, um, and no, re- no resistance to breathing during rest. So in terms, of mouth, in terms of breathing through the nose, you've got a wide nasal cavity, you've got a, your first part of the fence, antiviral, antibacterial, um, you carry nitric oxide, which helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs, increases oxygen uptake in the blood by 10%, the PaO2, and nasal breathing during physical exercise gets more oxygen to the working muscles. Late nasal breathing is less trauma to the airways. So there's absolutely no comparison. And this is the the weird kind of thing about it. 20 years ago, nobody was talking about breathing through the nose. And now a new book that's come out, Brett, by James Nestor, all about nasal breathing. It's almost reaching the top best-selling book for the last few weeks on Amazon.com. Not just in its category, but of all books and of all categories. Um, And it's pretty much, a lot of it, you'll see the content, a a lot of similarities to the oxygen advantage, the same topics that we're discussing. And nasal breathing, it's great to see it get out there, but it's not just about nose breathing. It's about breathing functionally. And people have sometimes a lot of confusion out there because you go to your local yoga studio, the yoga instructor is telling you to take these big full breaths. Mm. The concentration is on the biomechanics of breathing, but in the process, they sacrifice the biochemistry. So breathing is is simple, but it's complex at the same time. It is. Yeah, it's complex. And, and actually, there's something that you said at the very beginning that I wanted to pick up there on that, which is 
um, when you're breathing through your mouth, you're introducing that fight or flight um, response. Yes. And I think you explained it. I'm pretty sure I saw you explaining this on, on a video, on a podcast. And it was so, it meant so much to me because it really simplified it, which is that when you breathe through your nose and people that are listening, obviously not if you're driving or people that are watching this can maybe do it, is that if you breathe in through your nose and you put your hand over your belly, you get a much deeper diaphragmatic belly breath. Whereas the moment you go in through your mouth, if you place your hand on your chest, you'll notice your upper breath and automatically people can see me, your shoulders rise. You are automatically now upper breathing. You're not getting as much. And, and it's quite a stress response, isn't it? And then that's yep. a feedback mechanism that sends a message to the brain that we're now in fight or flight. And it, it reaffirms that anxious response. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. if you look at it this way, any time throughout our evolution, whenever we were confronted by high stress, we always breathe it faster, harder, and upper chest breathing. Mm. So now if we're breathing faster and harder and upper chest breathing, it is sending a message to the brain that we are in that fight or flight response. It's synonymous. And conversely, doing the opposite sends the brain that we are in relaxation. Because if you deliberately breathe through your nose, you typically breathe slower because of the resistance, because, simply because your nose is a smaller entry. So your nose imposes a resistance to your breathing that's about two to three times that of the mouth. That slows down the breath. And slow breathing um, is conducive to bringing a calmness to the mind. And like I look at people coming in, they come in with panic disorder, they come in with anxiety, they come in with depression, and I look at their breathing, and it's very often fast upper chest breathing. And that's keeping them stuck in that state physiologically. And cognitive behavioral therapy does not change breathing patterns. You know, mm -hmm. So somebody is doing all of the counseling in the world, which of course is very helpful. It's not necessarily changing their sleep patterns, especially if they have dysfunctional breathing, and it's not changing their breathing patterns. And as long as the people have poor sleep quality, by virtue of breathing through the mouth and fast and hard breathing, they will tend to continue having anxiety of the mind. We need to change respiratory physiology. So I suppose, you know, we're tricking the brain into, even if you're stressed, you can trick the brain into thinking that everything is all right by simply changing your breathing patterns. Because... Never throughout our evolution, when we were stressed, we never had slow breathing. So slow breathing is conducive with relaxation. So the, the, the brain, the limbic system is a very primitive part of the brain. And through the breath, there is a part of the brain that's looking at our breathing. In the locus corollis, it was first identified in Stanford Medical School in March of 2017. When you breathe fast, this structure in the brain will relay signals of agitation to the rest of the brain. And when you, re when you breathe slow, it relays signals of calm. Nose breathing is a tendency to slow breathing and mouth breathing is nothing else other than fast breathing. And here's the sad thing. 25 to 50% of studied children persistently mouth breathe. No one is telling these kids any different. School teachers aren't talking about it. The educational system isn't talking about it. Parents aren't aware of it. Very few dentists are aware of it. There are a few wonderful dentists and especially coming from the UK, Professor John Mew, his son, Dr. Mike Mew, and a number of other dentists who know about this. They know about the impact of mouth breathing and the development of the child's face. Many dentists don't know about it, unfortunately, and many doctors don't know about it. So children who are growing up with their mouth open, these children are not going to reach the full potential. They don't sleep well at night, nor do adults. If any adult is breathing through an open mouth during sleep and waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, they are not likely to wake up feeling refreshed. And I was that way for years. And, you know, we're judging our children's intelligence based on academic achievement. And we're not taking into consideration their sleep quality. 
you know, how a child performs in exams, it's only partly got to do with their academic achievement. It's only partly got to do with their intelligence. It's also a lot got to do with their sleep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would have been fairly intelligent in primary school. Come secondary school, I went from the top of the class down to the bottom of the class. So here I'm a stupid kid in secondary school. And for me to get grades, you have to be very driven. You have to literally do nothing else other than study. So <clears throat> my whole teenage years was, was isolated to looking into books because, and you know, this is unfortunate, but not many kids will spend eight, 10 hours a day studying. And you know, and these kids then are labeled as not, not as intelligent by virtue of having constant fatigue, poor, poor quality sleep and exhaustion. Yeah. And also that, I mean, that kind of, if you're having to work that hard as well, it's just compounding that stress as well, because you're, you're kind of feeling inadequate in a way that you can't keep up without that continual. So just to clarify here for the listeners, we're talking here about breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Which is a lot of people. And as you say, like when you go to a yoga class, for example, often they'll focus on that long exhalation. Sometimes that will be with um, vibration and and noise. And and really they talk about instituting that um, calming response by actually that long exhalation through the mouth um, and focusing on that exhalation. Can you explain a bit more here? So I understand that we talked just there and you showed um, the nose and what it looks like. And we we can go into like the nuances of things like nitric oxide in a moment. But in terms of actually breathing out, what's the reason for breathing out through the nose as well? Breathing out through the nose, when you take a breath into the body, the nose is expended energy on conditioning that air as it's drawn into the lungs. Your nose moistens the incoming air. Your nose will warm up the incoming air. And then on the exhalation, your nose is designed to trap the heat and moisture from that breath. So there is, for example, a 42% greater water loss if you breathe out through your mouth. So if you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, you get rid of a lot of moisture. People, people can test it. You know, If they just get their phone and if they just breathe gently onto their nose, with their nose, and if they look at the halo, and then if they do a similar breath with their mouth, And you'll see that there's a much greater water loss breathing out through the mouth. There's no comparison. Now, I wouldn't be too worried about, you know, you're breathing in a yoga studio, you're there for a short period of time, you're breathing Mm -hmm. into the nose, you're having a prolonged and extended exhalation. Number one is you should never hear your breathing in a yoga studio. There's no reason to hear your breathing. Um, If the instructor is telling the students to take bigger breaths, um, the instructor would, would be probably better off telling the students not to hear their breathing because the instructor doesn't realize but that by taking bigger breaths, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood when you overbreed. And I'm assuming here that you're more likely to overbreed when you can hear your breathing during rest because the person is deliberately increasing the volume of air they are breathing. In the process, they're blowing off too much carbon dioxide. The loss of carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs, because literally we exhale CO2 from the lungs. Mm-hmm. This in turn reduces it in arterial blood. And uh, when there's a reduction to carbon dioxide in the blood, blood vessels constrict. And not only do blood vessels constrict, but also hemoglobin, which <clears throat> is a protein inside the red blood cells, hemoglobin holds onto oxygen more strongly. So it's kind of ironic. People are doing breathing exercises and they have this belief that it's good to bring in oxygen and get rid of as much carbon dioxide. And they're doing it, they're intentionally making their breathing bigger. And in the process, they are getting rid of too much CO2 and they don't realize that 
all they are doing is, number one, they are not increasing oxygen saturation in the blood. You're already almost fully saturated with normal, light, quiet breathing. But in the process of breathing too hard to get rid of too much carbon dioxide, they impair their blood circulation and they reduce oxygen delivery to the tissues and organs. So you can imagine, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I can understand why yoga, because it's originated in India, why there may have been an emphasis on breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. Because if you breathe out through the mouth, you get rid of heat from the body. So it can be a good way to cool down, but it doesn't make, make sense in the UK. Even on a hot day, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, and in Ireland, it's going to be the same. And many countries, it doesn't make sense. Now, you could argue then, well, it wouldn't make sense to breathe out through the mouth because you lose moisture on a hot day and you become dehydrated. And that's true. Let's look at nature. You know, the human, our evolution is highly intelligent. And there's very few functions, very few organs in the human body that are just there for the fun of it. You know, people taught, medical doctors, for example, taught the spleen was pretty useless and then go, go about removing the spleen and then they realized that the spleen is a blood bank that it serves its own purpose. And your nose is there for breathing in and out through it. And as young babies, infants, we breathe in and out through the nose. Mm. No animal goes around breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. No animal in the wild is sitting out in the field taking these full deep breaths because they think it's beneficial for them because their head is full of information about the importance of breathing more air. You know, let's go back to nature here because I think we have to, we have to trust that, yeah, and you could, well, one could say, well, modern day has changed, but that doesn't mean that evolution has let us down. Evolution has really performed a wonderful job in, in the intelligence in the human being. But our, our society has moved at a pace so quick that evolution can't keep up with it. And that's why we're probably lacking to some extent. But when we start to realize what we can do by bringing everything back to basics and nasal breathing is part of that. We're talking about COVID-19 at the moment in terms of, you know, everybody's talking about washing their hands. Nobody's talking about nasal breathing. But back in the 1920s, doctors and TB hospitals realized that the patients who were more susceptible to TB were mouth breathers because mm -hmm. your nose is your defense your first line of defense against, against viruses and bacteria, and your mouth isn't. And also, um, there is a way to breathe if one is infected to improve oxygen uptake in the blood. Instead of when we have respiratory condition, we, we tend to breathe fast and shallow, and that's very inefficient and very uneconomical. And if we have a respiratory condition and our airways are tight, we feel that we're not getting enough air, so we switch to mouth breathing, so people who are infected with COVID, with faster breathing, are more likely to breathe through an open mouth and in the process emit more moisture into the atmosphere to increase the risk of infection to family members because of the greater water loss by breathing out through the mouth and COVID is carried in water particles. So it goes back to the basics, in and out through your nose. And uh, I don't want to kind of talk too much, but in terms of um, always looking at breathing in terms of three dimensions, we can change our blood circulation by improving our breathing patterns. And people with poor breathing typically and commonly have cold hands and cold feet and brain fog. Number two, we can change the biomechanics of breathing to bring a calmness to the mind for better functional movement, for reduced risk of injury, for lymphatic drainage. And number three, by changing the cadence of breathing, we can influence the autonomic nervous system to stimulate the vagus nerve to increase the sensitivity of the bioreceptors, 
to improve heart rate variability, which is a reflection of vagal tone. Mm-hmm. And most people, and I made the same mistake, we're all stuck in our own little silos. And I was stuck in my silo of concentrating primarily on the biochemistry of breathing. But that's not enough. And then you have other individuals in their occupations, they're concentrating on the biomechanics of breathing. But they're not looking at the biochemistry and they're not looking at cadence breathing. And then heart rate variability instructors are looking at cadence breathing and they're not necessarily looking at biomechanics and they're not looking at the biochemistry. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really important to look at breathing as three dimensions and it's like three legs of a stool, a three-legged stool and one leg short, it's not going to, it's not going to balance. Yeah, for sure. Well, that, I mean, that's a, that's a very good way of summing up because all of those three areas are so important. And I think what people underestimate as well, you mentioned brain fog there is that even if you've got good blood oxygen um, saturation that you might see, um, you may not be getting good oxygenation to your tissue. So you may not be getting as much. And I think a lot of people don't realize what you were saying there, that actually if you over breathe out and you're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide, because we were all taught in school that carbon dioxide is not good, um, that actually we need that for that exchange, that oxygen transfer into the tissues. Yes. So by, by nasal breathing, even at work, people who are you know having to focus hard and they want to get into that flow state, actually this nasal breathing is super important for performance mentally as much as it is physically in terms of powering the muscles and things like that. Would you agree? Yes, yeah, yeah. Flow state is when your attention is moving simultaneously with time, mm-hmm. that you're absolutely immersed in the present moment, that you don't, you don't have distracting thoughts coming into the mind, that you're able to place your full attention on doing what you are doing. So whether it's flow state, whether you're in the zone, whether it's really, a, it's a measure of concentration. It's a state of the mind whereby we are both in relaxation, but alertness at the same time. So the mind is relaxed, but fully focused at the same time. And uh, we can activate that. And we can activate it by focusing on our breathing during the day. And even by simply just understanding by slowing down your breath to maybe 5.5 or six breaths per minute with light breathing that you don't hear your breathing in and out through your nose with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. And that alone, you'll be targeting two out of three dimensions. And if you practice that, it's the ideal cadence of breathing in terms of improving or influencing the autonomic nervous system that even to do that coming into a challenging time. If you practice that during the day, you tap into a part of the body, you tap into a function that when you need to tap into it, you can at will. So, you know, the time to people talk about, well, how can you replicate the zone? I think it's pretty easy. Um, I don't have, you know, I give a lot of presentations and I have my own little kind of ritual that I do to prepare before I go out there. And because I don't want to be distracted by thoughts coming in, you know, if you're standing on a stage in front of five or 600 people, you know, if you start thinking about niggling doubts and, oh, what is that person going to think? And what sort of questions might they ask me? And how about if I get a mental block? And, you know, if all of this stuff comes into your head, you might as well never go, go out there. So we really have to be able to put the critical mind aside because the critical mind, um, it's often very negative. It's self-critical. It's, it's those recurrent thoughts. And all they are doing is going around and round and round and round the same unproductive, useless thinking that most of us have, but don't even realize it because we are trained how to think. We are trained how to analyze, how to break information into tiny pieces. We are taught how to think. 
there's a value placed on thinking, but there's no value placed on not thinking. Well, if you train somebody how to think by Western education, it's really important to train that person how to stop thinking because the happiness of the mind is determined by how, how often or you know, how, um, how likely is it to happen in terms of a wandering mind. Look at people who have agitation of the mind. You know, they, they are polluting their own space, but they're not just polluting their own space. They're polluting the space of everyone around them. Mm. And I was in that space, you know, chronic mouth breathing, poor sleep, thinking, 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 highly stressed, upper chest breathing, fast breathing. And of course, you're going to be highly strong. And uh, you don't just pollute your own space. But the best thing about it is that we can do something about it. But here is the issue. When you first switch from um, just observing your mind, it's often that you're increasing the amplitude of thoughts and you just begin to realize just how often you're thinking, how many thoughts are going through your head, you know, the, the self, the negative, negativity of the thoughts, the self-criticism, etc. So you're amplifying it. And oftentimes that can be a scary place. But now you're becoming aware of it. And the other thing is when people start focusing on their breath, if they do have a lot of thought activity, they have difficulty focusing on their breathing because they start to focus on their breath, but their mind takes over and they run off and thought. And then they bring their attention back onto their breath and they run off and thought again. And the mind is constantly wandering. And if the mind is constantly wandering, it gives you a reflection of the state of concentration of that individual. Because a measure of concentration is your ability to hold your attention on the subject matter for a period of time without distraction. And that's flow state. Now, some people can enter it during certain activities. A guy, for instance, that's doing big wave surfing, he goes into it or she goes into such a dangerous activity that the danger has an immediate effect on shutting off the critical mind because you're hanging on for dear life or somebody climbing up a, a large mountain or whatever, or, you know, the face of a cliff, etc. But you don't have to do activities like that to bring a stillness to the mind. A stillness to the mind is something that we practice, but be patient with it. You know, so I know it myself, I'd be focusing on my breathing. My mind would wander off, focusing on my breath. My mind would wander off, bring it back. My mind wanders off. And I just kind of stuck with it over time. Wonderful place to be. Absolutely wonderful. You know, and society, unfortunately, is going the other way. Our heads are stuck looking at Facebook and Instagram and all of these major multinational companies who have made it literally addictive to, uh, to individuals. You know, our children are going to be addicted to technology because of clever multinationals with psychologists that are brought in to, to create a trap to, to make the technology addictive, that people have no other, you know, they're not giving themselves any time. They're surrendering all of their time to these multinationals so that the multinationals can make millions of millions of dollars on advertising, you know? Mm. So <laughs> I really find sometimes it's so sinister, um, these larger multinationals, you know, and they're probably headed by very intelligent individuals, but the goal is don't care about the, the user pretend to care. It's all about the dollar. It's all about the euro. It's all about the pound. And it is addictive because it's that constant dopamine rush that you're getting every time you check. Oh, I might have another message. I might have another like, I might have another comment or whatever it is at the time. Yeah. 
So let's let's talk then about practical steps that people can use to to help to quieten the mind. And obviously the breath is an amazing entry point because it's unconscious and conscious. It's something that we can access. It's much more difficult to try and control the rhythm of the heart for somebody than it is to actually actively control the cadence of their breathing, for example. So what would you recommend for people who, and, and certainly listeners of this podcast, you know, it being the High Performance Health Podcast, want to know increasingly how they can access a flow state more often, how they can get into the zone. Um, and we talk about the physical side in a moment, but in terms of that, what's, what's the breathwork exercise that they can do? And is it a daily thing that they should set aside time to do? Can you explain a bit more what mm. they should be doing? The first thing that I would say to anybody is make sure you get your mouth closed at night. There are six mm -hmm. to eight hours. And if you have your mouth open during that time, you're, you're already, you're setting off your, you know, your day is not going to be perfectly right the next day. Um, so get the mouth closed. We've been taping them out for 20 years. And it's something that I would say to all of my students, absolutely. If you have a dry mouth in the morning, start getting your mouth closed. And if you have to wear tape, wear tape. The second thing is, Become aware of the influence that you can have over your breathing. And uh, if your nose is stuffy, decongest your nose with the exercise that I, I showed you. But also measure your bolt score. And your bolt score is a measure of the length of time that you can hold your breath for comfortably. So basically the instruction is you take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose. You pinch your nose with your fingers and you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe are the first involuntary movement of the breathing muscles. And when you resume breathing, your breathing is fairly normal. So it's not a measure of the maximum length of breath all time. It's only a measure of how long does it take until the brain sends the impulse or an increased impulse to breathe. Okay. Can you, can you ignore a little bit here? So, cause this, I'd like to try it with you in a second. Um, but can you ignore? So the first desire, cause obviously breathing is natural. The yes. first bit, you might not have what you call a hunger, first, but obviously yes. the brain's saying breathe. Is it that very first inkling? It's the first definite desire. It's not necessarily the first inkling. Sometimes people can get an okay. inkling five or sec six seconds in and yeah. it's not that one. It's okay. the first definite desire that you feel that, yes, I need to take in a breath. But coinciding with that, you may feel involuntary movement of the breathing muscle. So hereby, the brain is sending a message to the diaphragm breathing muscle and the diaphragm contracts. So it gives an involuntary movement. And uh, that's the breath all time. Like if we can try it there, I'll just put a timer here. Okay. And never worry about what you get because this is influenced by genetics. There's only really feedback. So whenever you're ready, Angela, you take a normal breath in through your nose. And just normal, we shouldn't really hear it. So we'll do it again. So just breathe normal. So you have a normal breath in and a normal breath out and hold your nose. And we're just timing it in seconds until you feel the first step and the desire to breathe. So keep holding your breath, keep relaxing into the body. Now you may feel movement contractions in the throat, so it's 15 seconds there. So yeah, because... So that's quite short. It's, and it can be common quite short and it be, it, it's very much influenced. If you look at people with breathing pattern disorders, mm. it's high with people who have exercise induced bronchoconstriction, people with childhood asthma, any sort of childhood asthma, even if they grew out of it. Um, women during monthly cycle at certain stages, their breath toll time will dramatically reduce during the luteal phase. Um, progesterone is a stimulant, respiratory stimulant. And that will reduce breath all time. 
And coinciding with that, of course, the female may be more exposed to, to increased pain, fatigue, panic, etc. Um, anxiety and panic disorder certainly plays a role in it as well. So if there's bronchoconstriction of the airways, if there's anxiety, if there's a tendency towards panic disorder, hormonal changes, history of the person, and also chemosensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide. Now, aside from that, it's still a useful measurement. Mm. And it's useful in that it tells you, it gives you some indicator of your functional breathing or not. Mm. Individuals with a tendency to fast breathe. And I'm not saying that the person is having a panic attack, but that their breathing is just that little bit faster than it should be. So individuals with a tendency to breathe a little bit faster, a little bit more upper chest, a little bit more irregular, they typically have a lower breath hold time. And what does that mean? Well, for physical performance, the lower breath hold time will translate into increased breathlessness during physical performance. So it's a measure of breathlessness. Hmm. Um, to, to give you an example, like, you know, I work with professional athletes quite a bit. And one professional athlete I've been working with recently, breath hold time, this, this individual is an MMA fighter, Bellator. So fighting at a pretty high level and tough, extremely extreme athlete. Um, breath hold time of eight seconds. You know, and this person was thinking, well, didn't know whether they would gas out too soon getting into the, into the ring, anxious about their breathing before they get into the ring. And uh, asthma was the problem. And it's not that, you know, it, we can still improve the breath hold time because people are breathing hard and fast because of their asthma, but their hard and fast breathing is feeding into their asthma. Breathing can be yeah. changed. Like if we look at the work of an Italian cardiologist called Luciana Bernardi, and he was working with his patients with chronic heart failure. And he was noticing that his patients with chronic heart failure had exercise intolerance. They had dyspnea. They had breathlessness. They would go for a walk. And for the given level of physical exercise, their breathing is too hard, too fast. Their, their breathing is too much for the amount of exercise that they are doing. Now he asked the question, was it their chronic heart failure which was causing them to breathe harder and faster? Or was it because they have an increased chemosensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide? So he started training his, his patients to slow down their breathing to six breaths per minute. By doing that, he was able to reduce their exercise tolerance. So breathing can be trained regardless of the condition mm. that's feeding into it, whether it's anxiety, panic disorder, asthma, all of these conditions are feeding in and itself, you know, like the person yeah. going into the ring. They're, they're anxious now about gassing out. And of course, anxiety is going to feed into it. So both score is a good measurement. And in one paper by Kiesel, Professor Kiesel, of, he's a professor of physical therapy in the United States. He did a study with 51 subjects. And if individuals have a both score of 25 seconds, once the bowl score is 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. So in other words, we want to get a minimum of 25 seconds. So how do we do it? Well, you practice slowing down and reducing your breathing. For example, if you sit into your chair, if you put one hand on your chest, put one hand just above your navel, tune into your breathing, and really follow the airflow as it's coming into your nose and follow the airflow as it's leaving your nose, and continue nasal breathing, but slow down the speed of the air as it enters and leaves your nostrils. So the whole purpose here is to gently slow down the speed of your breathing 
to the point that you feel a tolerable air hunger. Now, a tolerable air hunger just signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, your blood vessels will dilate. You've got increased oxygen delivery throughout the body. You'll have increased watery saliva in the mouth. You'll feel more drowsy. So this is looking at breathing from a biochemical point of view. Mm -hmm. And by regularly practicing, just slowing down your breath and also going for a walk with your mouth closed, go for a run with your mouth closed. And if the air hunger gets a bit too much, just slow down the pace. Because if you run with your mouth closed, number one is you've got a better oxygen uptake in the blood. You've got a better oxygen delivery to the tissues. You've got better functional movement. So it reduces the risk of injury. Like runners are running around with their mouths wide open. They breathe fast and shallow. It's impairing gas exchange. And also they don't get adequate amplitude of the diaphragm breathing muscle by mouth breathing. And the diaphragm breathing muscle is therefore providing stabilization of the spine. So the generation of intra-abdominal pressure. Um, the core is you've got the diaphragm to the top and the pelvic floor to the bottom. The diaphragm is, is playing a role there. So, but mouth breathing is not activating the diaphragm to the same amplitude that nose breathing is. And yeah, I know it's easier to, to do physical exercise with the mouth open. It's a case of quality over quantity. Yeah, so people need to slow it down. Well, what's interesting, I say, when we just did that exercise there, two things. One, um, I wanted to take a deeper breath and I could see you were going <clears> to let me because you said, you can't, we, we mustn't be able to hear you. That then instituted anxiety in me because I, I, I mean, uh, people who listen to this podcast will know that I have um, infection induced asthma, having had pneumonia. That's how mine, we believe mine began. Um, and so I, I find it difficult to clear the air is what they found when they assessed me in one of those sort of oxygen tanks in the hospital from my lungs. But I certainly have this desire that I feel like I need to take a bigger intake of breath. So before that, when we did that exercise, I think that I wanted to take a deeper breath in. So that already made me feel anxious and I could feel that. So then holding it made me feel like, well, how long have I got to hold it for? Does that make sense? So all I could think about was how long have I got to hold for mm. now? Because I want to take this big breath in. Whereas, and we can come to this in a moment. Whereas if I've done say um, rhythmic breathing, so kind of pranayama through something like the Wim Hof style, I know that that is doing much more um, intense breathing exercises and you're exha exhaling a lot of the carbon dioxide, then you can do the breath hold for longer. But yeah. this just shows me, because from, from what you're saying as well, if it's below 25 or definitely below 20, which mine was, this implies that there is dysfunctional breathing yes. quite significantly, right? It's there. Mm. And you know, the Wim Hof technique involves hyperventilation. Mm -hmm. getting rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. And even during the breath hold, the carbon dioxide doesn't recover. So you're not exposing yourself to higher carbon dioxide during the Wim Hof technique, mm -hmm. but you are exposing yourself to quite low drops in blood oxygen saturation. So it's just a matter of practicing it. And the best way to do this is to do it very gentle. Everybody has different reactions to the feeling of air hunger. Some people will feel it's a little bit uncomfortable, but other people might go into a panic attack. So it depends on genetic predispositions. And uh, definitely if there's a little bit of anxiety or panic disorder there, you have to go very, very easy. But bear in mind, we feel breathlessness if you go for a fast walk. If you go for a jog, you're gonna feel a little bit breathless. And all we're doing is just during rest, 
just gently slowing down the speed of air that you are breathing to take less air, a little bit less air into the body, to allow carbon dioxide to increase in the blood by exposing the brain to increase carbon dioxide and drop to the blood pH. This in turn then changes our breathing pattern that our breathing becomes slower. Like for example, if you look at your breathing, Angela, there, there's your breath in, breath out. It's quite quick, I think. It's Although quick, I might not but have that's my mouth open, it's It doesn't quick. matter. It doesn't matter. Because it's not just about breathing through your nose. It's also the characteristics mm. of your breathing. But your breathing is reflective of a, a bolt score of 15 seconds. Mm. Um, because it's a little tight. bit faster. It's always tight for me. But, but this is where the practice will be. And, you know, like in terms of there's other exercises that you can do that are very easy that you might start off with if chest tightness is there. Mm. Take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose, and now walk holding your breath on the spot. Walk on the spot for about 10 paces or so. So walk on the spot for 10 paces, but then let go but breathe in through your nose. And now let go and breathe in through your nose. And then you can stop walking and recover for a moment. Easier. For some reason, the walking made the exercise easier. So, but there's, there's many different exercises. Like, you know, I've worked with individuals with breathing problems since 2002. We've had thousands. I've been involved with four clinical trials. And in total, we've 20 clinical trials using, and many of them are double blind controlled trials. Looking at, you know, this is originally the Buteco method. Mm. looking at the application of it for asthma. BBC did a documentary, and you'll see it on YouTube. If you put in BBC QED documentary, sorry, BBC QED Buteco, you'd have to put in Buteco documentary. Watch that. They got three very severe long-term asthmatics. They put them through a five-day of changing their breathing, and just watch what happens. And you know, in clinical trials, comparing this to physiotherapy, which was at the Matter Hospital in Brisbane in 1994, they got originally 170 match, well, 170 individuals with asthma, adults. They selected 40 individuals. They put 20 into Buteco group. 20 were doing the in-house hospital program at the Matter Hospital in Brisbane. The Buteco group were taught breathing exercise design to breathe less air. Because the premise is that people with asthma breathe too hard, too fast, and this is feeding into their asthma. The in-house hospital program was doing whatever they teach at the hospital. At the end of 12 weeks, the Buteco group had 70% less symptoms, 90% less need for bronchodilator, which is your Ventolin or your rescue medication, and 49% less need for inhaled corticosteroid. And the in-house hospital program had 0% improvement. None. Zero. And unfortunately, what's being taught in hospitals is the in-house hospital program because it's not addressing minute ventilation. These people with asthma were breathing 14 liters of air per minute during rest. This is not their minute ventilation preceding an attack. This is their everyday normal breathing volume was 14 liters. It should be four to six liters. Wow. People with asthma wow. breathe too fast, too hard, and often through an open mouth. Mm. And we have to break that cycle, you know, so you could be practicing. But all they that- do at the hospital is give you steroids, right? I mean, that's what I was given. And it's interesting, your observations with me that, yeah, I am definitely breathing too fast and I, I want to slow that down. But really their answer is to prescribe Simbicort to, to yeah, reduce like, the implication, the inflammation. Like in terms of if somebody is, is in, in an asthma 
situation, asthma attack, etc. Of course, oral steroids, whatever needs to be done to get their asthma under control, absolutely. But even when they're taking medication and they are stable, why mm. not change their breathing mm. patterns? And why not teach these people with asthma? Because they don't just have asthma, they're tired. I was exhausted. I was constantly exhausted. We don't just have asthma. We mm. don't just have a breathing problem. The person with anxiety doesn't just have anxiety. Their breathing, their sleep is also affected by it because we have to look at the bi-directional relationship between breathing, sleep, and the emotions. And all is interconnected with it. And, you know, I woke up the first decent night's sleep that I had in 20 years was after getting my mouth closed. And that was after reading about it in a newspaper article. You know, and you might say, well, you know, many people will say, for instance, they're breathing through the nose all the time, but do they have the mouth open or closed when they go for a walk, when they go for a run, when they're in bed, you know, yeah. when they're asleep, whatever they're doing. And we have to think about the nose as being the first line of defense for the lungs. You've got nitric oxide there, a gas that was first identified back in 1991 on the exhaled breath of the human being, which is a natural bronchodilator, which helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs, which increases oxygen uptake, which sterilizes the incoming air. And despite that, there are 5.6 million people with asthma in the UK. How many of those people have been told to breathe through the nose? Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it doesn't happen. But yes your mouth serves no function in terms of breathing. And if you look at Asthma UK, they, they will give very little advice on it as well. You know, they consider that breathing exercises are, are alternative. There's nothing alternative about breathing exercises. You're <laughs> it addressing- fundamental you're, to life. <laughs> it's absolutely fundamental. You know, it's, it's normal physiology that's described in any medical textbook. But the problem is our healthcare system doesn't have the time, doesn't have the resources, and there's no money to be made from teaching breathing exercises. And I might be cynical, but I've seen at least 8,000 people go through my doors that I've worked with directly. I've seen result after result, and I'm not saying that this is 100%. It's not. Nothing is 100%. But I have seen remarkable changes in individuals, children, teenagers, adults, over the years by simply making changes to breathing. And the first step is switch to nasal breathing, but also understand and gently practice your breathing. Mm. Like for example, I make a point, when you watch back in this interview, you will see that you take a sigh every eight, nine, 10 minutes. Yeah, I, 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 I need but it. That's enough. I really need it. But you only need it because of a dysfunctional breathing pattern. Mm. And that's enough to keep you stuck there. So mm. individuals who come in, it's very common that they may be yawning frequently or they are sighing frequently. And we practice gently, and there's another one from you. I we actually, practice yeah. gently slowing <laughs> down breathing because all that's doing is going to feed into symptoms. So mm -hmm. yeah, you know, even if you were just sitting back, you have one hand on chest, one hand on tummy, you're just gently slowing down your breathing to the point of a light air hunger. And then what you could do is after three, four minutes of that, now you don't do it until the point that you're stressed and so you know, would I be I, counting in this scenario for, for no, people who want to no, try it? No, no, no. How, how, I, how are we slowing it down? Well, it doesn't don't work. Count. You can't count okay. it because, well, if you do it this way, take, take a breath in for two seconds. Okay. So you've seen that breath. You took it in for about two seconds. Now take a very light breath in for two seconds. Very light. 
Well, you I can still see it. Yeah, so you can. can't time yeah, it because you can. A person can take a full big breath in two seconds, or they can take a light breath in two seconds. Mm. So it's not about timing the breath per se, but you could just think of, you know, just gently slowing down the speed of the air entering and leaving the nose, and reducing the flow of breathing so that you feel less air coming into your nose. Or you could do it this way: put your finger underneath your nose like this. And that you're gently feeling the airflow coming onto your nose and you're taking a very soft and light breath in and then breathe out with such a prolonged and relaxed exhalation, almost that you are hardly breathing at all, that you can imagine that your finger is a feather and that your breathing is so light that the feather doesn't move. Now, this well, I, like, be... I like that one for, the, for people that are just listening and not watching. I'd encourage you to go and watch, but I have my finger under my nose. That's what Patrick's guiding. That... For some reason, that's very calming. And that what you were saying there, sorry to interrupt you, feeling like it's as light as a feather and controlling the breath. And you're having a prolonged and relaxed exhalation and that automatically will activate the parasympathetic response because mm -hmm. the inhalation, during the inhalation, it's more sympathetically driven because the vagus nerve steps back. And during the exhalation is, is primarily under the control of the parasympathetic response. So to bring the body into parasympathetic response, meaning relaxation, um, you have a slow and prolonged relaxed exhalation. And the breath itself, we should have the, the ratio of the breath in to the breath out should be about 1 to 1.5. Now, there's other options, you know, but I would say starting off is do the breath holding, you know, and I would say like take a normal breath in through your nose, normal breath out, and you can do it once you're not pregnant. You take a normal breath in and out through your nose, you pinch your nose, and you walk on the spot holding your breath, and maybe at the start, do a few pace, do a few for 10 paces, mm -hmm. then increase it to 15, then increase it to 20, then increase it to 25. And once you're getting comfortable with it, push it, push it. And do maybe about six repetitions, three times daily. And for anyone with parents with kids, our children's program, which you could, which you could practice from the kids program, mm -hmm. is completely free on YouTube completely free. Every exercise for the Buteco method is free for children on YouTube. That, I, I will link to all of that in the show notes. That's so important because I think a lot of people don't understand as well that actually the way that a child breathes affects their bone, their structure yes. of their mouth and everything. Can you explain just so people can understand that a bit better? Because Yeah, of course. Parents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my facial structure was years of chronic mouth breathing. So my nose is bent because my maxilla, which is my top jaw, is not forward enough. Um, when we have the mouth closed during childhood, we need to have the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. And by virtue of having the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, it's helping to direct the growth of the face forward. So it's, we don't want the face just growing in Lent. We want the face growing forward. And if you look at beautiful looking faces, mm. you will see that the tip of the chin is nearly as far forward as the nose. For example, look at the definition here that you see the nose here, the nose is straight and the nose looks the correct size. You know, it looks the correct size here because the maxilla is nice and forward. Mm -hmm. And now you have the lower jaw, the mandible, and you see that it's nice. See that nice definition here. Yeah. Whereas a mouth breather, the maxilla might be stopping here and the mandible is coming back down here. So the person doesn't have a strong chin. But the problem here is that if you have a child who has been mouth breathing for persistent periods of time, 
that when they have jaws that are set back, their airway then is compromised. My airway is compromised. I would never be an athlete. I always had sleep problems throughout my school years. Um, now I've learned to compensate it to a good degree, but I've had Dr. William Hang do scans of my airway and he says my airway is totally compromised. And I know that, but I've been able to get away with it. But here's, the, unfortunately, children, nobody's paying any attention to them. And it's not just about the shape of the face, but number one, it's not just even, you know, it's a child who has the mouth closed will have a better tendency to develop straight teeth. And when a child goes to an orthodontist, there are two schools of thought in orthodontistry. One is that the child's teeth are too big for the face, so let's extract teeth and realign the remaining teeth. But the problem there is now that the mouth is too small for the tongue, and if the child has had retraction, that their jaws are set back, now their airway is compromised. We have 32 teeth. We need to be able to hold on to them. Another school of thought in orthodontistry is that the reason that the teeth are overcrowded is not because the teeth are too big. The problem is that the jaw is too small. Let's expand the jaw. That's a much better way. Hold on to your teeth and develop the maxilla gently over a period of time, and not just in width, but in forward growth to make, make room for the airway. So children who are mouth breathing, unfortunately, these kids they're not likely to reach their full potential. And I wrote an article on it. I wrote a book on this back in 2010. And um, I used to go over and back to Professor John Mew in the UK. He's based in Surrey. And I'd sit, he's 91 years of age now. He's been talking about this for 50 years. And it was interesting when I was reading about it in James Nestor's book, because James Nestor went, I was kind of looking for the book there, but I don't see it, went and interviewed Dr. John Mew. And Dr. John Mew was kind of disregarded by his colleagues, his peers in orthodontistry, not because what they, he said they didn't agree with, but because he criticized what they were doing. And this is really bizarre because this shouldn't be about, you know, oh, that person is criticizing what I'm doing or they don't believe my school of thought. It should be about the health of the child. You know, sure. and it, like it, it's, I really find it often, you know, really like people who are intelligent, society regards them as being very intelligent. And they've sometimes they are missing the fundamental core uh, in terms of respiration. And probably because it's too simple and, you know, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. How would people know that their child was maybe mouth breathing? Would like constant chapped lips be an identification? That's one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Absolutely, mm. chapped lips. Nasal breathers don't get chapped lips. Mm. And the reason being is because you're not passing air across the lips. Mm -hmm. So mouth breathers are very prone to chapped lips. Mouth breathers are more prone to bad breath. Mouth breathers are more prone to snoring. Children wetting the bed the bedclothes tossed and turned, you shouldn't hear a child breathing during their sleep. And it's not just that, you know, we're talking about compromised airway, but we're also talking about breathing problems. And if you're hearing a child and if they are breathing heavily during sleep, really, really, really get it checked out. Because the issue here is, and if you look at, Karen Bonnock did a study back in 2011. She looked at 11,000 children in Stratford-upon-Avon children with sleep disorder breathing, and she also looked and in, included mouth breathing as a contributory factor to sleep disorder breathing. 
Children with sleep disorder breathing who were untreated by age five, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. This is not about the impact of sleep problems with children impacting their academic achievement now. Mm. This is about the impact of sleep disorder breathing on the cognitive development of that child. Children who are not sleeping well during childhood, it's, it's likely that it increases the risk of these kids requiring special education needs. Now, you know, let's look at the airway. Let's look at flow. Let's look at nasal breathing. The problem with this, Angela, is all of the information is buried in the literature. Mm. You'll find it on PubMed. It's generally, yeah, it's out of reach of most parents because nobody is talking about it. And um, so any parent who wants to investigate it, go into PubMed and look at oral breathing, cognitive development, put in Karen Bonnock, B-O-N-U-C-K. Look at the work of um, Professor John Mew, Dr. Kevin Boyd, the Academy of Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy in the United States, the, the American Academy of Physiological Medicine and Dentistry. Um, there's many organizations and hundreds and hundreds of healthcare professionals who know this information. This is not my opinion. Mm. I just happened to see these kids coming in over the years. I happened to be one of those kids. So I have a personal story to tell. And that's why we put the information out there, you know, because somebody has to put it out there. The, the general practitioner doesn't know about it because the general practitioner has no time. They have 15 minutes for a patient. 15 minutes to assess and to, to diagnose and to prescribe. Sure, how can you fix breathing in 15 minutes? It's not yeah. possible. Well, no, absolutely. And I know, like, for example, when I've been with my own son, he, um, you know, the most we get is, well, maybe he needs a blue and a brown inhaler. And how often yeah. is he using his blue one? Because if he's using it more than three times a week, by the way, you need the brown, which children yes. absolutely hate because it tastes disgusting. Um, yes. You know, and there's a whole rigmarole around that anyway. It can that can cause infection in the mouth in and of itself. The the brown one, the steroid, um, but yeah, the steroid inhaler exactly. And I think um, I think this is amazing just to try and get this message out there so that more parents can understand it. Mm. And so what we should be doing is encouraging our children. Would you would you tape a child's mouth during sleep? Yeah, like um, coming back to your coming back to your question in terms of how do you recognize if your child has the mouth open or not? Mm. There, there is no way to screen. And this is part of the problem with science because doctors would like to know how long should a child have nasal obstruction before it's clinically relevant? relevant? At what age does the onset of nasal obstruction cause a problem in the child's development? We don't know these, we don't know these ideas. However, um, we, yes, in terms of taping them out, what I'd say to parents, first of all, is look at your child just breathing. Look at them every now and again and just ask yourself the question, every time that you look at your child breathing, do they have their, their mouth open five times out of 10? And if they have their mouth open more than five times out of 10, I would say absolutely there's likely to be a habit of mouth breathing there. And, you know, no child should have their mouth open for more than 30 seconds at a time because the only need the mouth is for eating, for drinking, for speaking. And, you know, child is watching television. If the mouth is open, if the child is sleeping with the mouth open, if the child is playing, maybe if they're, they have permission to go on the iPhone or something, if their mouth is open and um, playing video games, whatever they're, they're doing, keep an eye on it. 
we developed to change the pattern of the pattern of breathing. I developed a tape a short while ago because we we had no way. I would have children coming in, and I would go through all of the exercises and decongest the nose, and I would have them wear tape across their lips during wakefulness to establish nasal breathing. But we had always had a problem with sleep, and here you have six to eight hours that the child is likely to have the mouth open, mm-hmm. that it's making their asthma worse, that it's it's disrupting their sleep quality, etc. The tape that that we used um, that I is called myotape. And we would say, you know, this is the child's size, so it's not going to fit on my mouth very well. But actually, I, I'll show you the adult size is probably a bit, bit easier, but you get an idea where I'm coming with it. Mm. So this is the adult size, and this is the child size. So you see there's a difference. Yeah. Now, the adult size is, it's elasticated tape. It's a cotton tape. And you simply... So it's not covering the lips here? No, it's okay. not. But okay. it's, it's tense. It's tensed. So because of the elastication, that's pulling the lips together. Right. And it's also imparting a training effect in terms of the brain. Because now what we do, and I see it with my own daughter. I have a 10-year-old inside. And, uh, you know, she's pretty good now at nasal breathing. But it took a fair bit of work. I have to say, it's not a walk okay. in the park. Okay. Yeah, it does. Mm. You have to keep on top of it. Children don't necessarily like doing the breathing exercises, so you do them best, and you don't want to burn out compliance at the same time. But anytime I see her with the mouth open, I'll have her wear the tape, because any, you know, in terms of if she's watching TV, if she's getting a bit tired, that's the time when I start to notice the mouth can fall open, because she's lapsing in concentration. I have her wear the tape, and if the, the mouth does happen to fall open like this, automatically she will feel the elasticity of the tape oh, bringing so the lips cool. together. So it's, 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 it's sending her a reminder to continuously breathe through the nose. And it's a great way to do it because you're training the brain then to mm. develop the habit of breathing in and out through the nose. Now, she, she wears the tape every night. We have her wear the tape. Um, she also does orthodontics. Is it uncomfortable with, when you take it off? Or do you it's put a little bit, yeah. You have to go very, very gentle with it. You know, okay. it's, you have to go. It's specially made for the skin. Okay. And, you know, you have to go gentle with it after a night's sleep. That's and the can only people thing. Buy, they can buy this from your website, presumably. Yeah, it's on myotape.com. And it doesn't cost very much. You know, it's $25 for three months supply. Okay. So it's about seven US dollars a month. That's what, about five pounds a month. Mm, so yeah, it's not expensive. expensive. And with that, that's why we put the children's exercises out for free. So, you know we have the, you get the children's exercises for free anyway. So the only thing that you would have to pay for is the tape. Mm. So it's a cheap $5 a month, five pounds a month, and it helps change the habit of mouth breathing. Now, the other thing is when you have your child wear the tape during the day, just, just check how comfortable is the child breathing through the nose. And if the child has a history of stuffy nose, have the child do the nose unblocking exercise. You'll see all of the videos there, mm. how to decongest the nose. And the child, if the child is getting relief by decongesting the nose, then you know that the obstruction of the nose is more likely to be the front of the nose. So my point is, we have to ask the question, why is the child have the mouth open? So you, for example, you can have, for instance, a child can have enlarged adenoids here, which is a lymphatic tissue at the back of the, the, the roof of the nose. Yeah. And, 
By the way, enlarged adenoids are only really a problem when the airway is compromised. Mm -hmm. If the child has a really well-developed airway, if they have enlarged adenoids, they're going to be less of a problem. But if you have a child with jaws that are set back, that, uh, that the mouth is open, the palate is high, and the airway is compromised, and then combine that with enlarged adenoids, it's a problem because the child can't breathe through the nose adequately. And the, the, generally the gold standard of treatment is to, to have tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. Yeah. There's a 65% chance of relapse within three years in terms of sleep disorder breathing unless nasal breathing is restored. Wow. It's only a short-term intervention unless the child is taught how to breathe through the nose. And the other thing is, maybe we should be looking at the child's airway. Mm. Maybe that's the issue. Mm. And how would you look at the child's airway? Only Just a functional actually... dentist could do it. Okay. Only a functional dentist. Um, a dentist with an interest not just in, in straightening teeth, but a dentist with an interest in the development of the face. Okay. So one that may be affiliated with Dr. Mike Mew mm -hmm. in Pearly or other, you know, other individuals who are trained to identify that. Gosh, that's near to me. I'm going to link to all of this. This, this is interesting because... What about a child that's left to mouth breathe? And I, it's, it's interesting because there were two theories, for example, when I ended up battling with, with pneumonia was actually, did I have asthma that was undiagnosed before? And that's why that infection became so bad because I'd already had by this stage pleurisy, bronchitis, and maybe 10 courses of antibiotics for chest infections. So it was, I'd had a lot of them. And, and I guess my question here is because we know, and I used to get chapped lips as a child when I used to run, I used to definitely breathe in through my mouth and it used to be painful on a cross-country run because it, it aggravates the airways, doesn't it? Particularly yes. if it's cold and as you say, it's yes. not warming the air. Is there a risk then for children that are used to mouth breathing all the time? They are presumably more vulnerable to infection because of the fact that as you explained, the nose sterilizes the air to a degree, it's a filter but also because there's now you're causing further obstruction and tightness in the lungs. And so you're, you're just more vulnerable. There's more inflammation there, presumably as well. Yes, there, there seems to be. Um, anecdotally, and this is with working with people over many, many years, we've seen there's no question that once individuals who have their mouth open, they are more prone to colds, they are more prone to chest infections. Mm. And also they have prolonged colds and prolonged chest infections. Whereas nasal breathing, and especially getting them out closed at night, and it's interesting, there was a paper published, um, it's an article published in PubMed by one of the publications by Elsevier, so it's a medical journal, and it was written by researchers in Taiwan, and they looked at nasal breathing for COVID, and they said that nasal breathing mightn't necessarily stop COVID. However, it's likely to be very helpful in terms of reducing the viral load. And they also talked about the importance of nasal breathing during sleep to allow the immune system to mount an adequate response. Now, whether it's a viral infection, whether it's a bacterial infection, we still need the nose to play a role in that. So somebody who is prone to recurrent chest infections and over time, then it can cause some damage to the airways, which can only be determined by a medical doctor. But the risk is that, you know, the airways don't function then as well as they should be. But in saying that, the human lungs are a tremendous organ, a tremendous organ. And I know I have scarring on my own lungs. But at the same time, 
I've, you know, once you learn how to improve and improve your breathing patterns, that you're not feeding into your condition, um, you can compensate to a good extent. But nasal breathing, and not to be breathing using the upper chest, because the structure of the lungs is that the greatest volume of blood is in the lower lobes of the lungs. Whereas if you're ventilating, if you're breathing in with the upper chest, you're breathing more air into the upper regions of the lungs. So there's a mismatch, there's a poorer gas exchange taking place. So in every way, your nose, as mm -hmm. you said, you go for a run with the mouth open, you're taking cold, dry air into your lungs. That's normal to cause with genetically predisposed individuals that it can cause exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. And the theory there is that the cold, dry air that you're taking into your, into your mouth, it's sucking moisture out of the airways, and this is causing the airways to constrict. And it's a vicious circle because once the airways constrict, you feel you're not getting enough air, mm. and then you breathe hard and fast through an open mouth. And an athlete who is breathing with a mouth open, they're more likely to gas out too soon, especially if they have any tendency towards asthma or have respiratory muscle fatigue. Um, they have a poor recovery post-physical exercise. You know, so I would say anybody, regardless of your genetics, change your breathing patterns. And so with exercise, the important thing then is to slow it down so that you can nasally breathe. So it's almost like taking a step backwards to go eventually quite a few steps forward so that you're oxygenating yes. those tissues much better. Yeah. Well, if you look at the work, okay, there's two aspects to it. Number one is get a, get a bold score that's higher. Because mm -hmm. if you have a bold score of, say, 30 seconds, it's easier to run with your mouth closed because you don't need as much air for a given level of exercise. Okay. Think of this, some individual is walking down the street and that individual is walking slowly, but they are breathing hard. I sit, if I sit them down and if I look at their breathing, I would see fast and harder breathing during rest. And if I measure their bolt score, their bolt score might be five or six seconds. The problem is not their breathing when they are walking. The problem is their everyday breathing. Mm. Their everyday breathing is too fast, too hard, and how you breathe during rest determines how you breathe during physical exercise and how you breathe during sleep. So the second aspect then is the size of the nose, the nasal cavity, etc. So for example, if you do this, if you put one finger either side of your nostrils mm -hmm. and gently prise your nostrils apart, does it make a difference to your breathing? Mm. If it feels easier to breathe, it could be useful then to use a nasal dilator. So the two things would be um, get your both score higher and if necessary, wear a nasal dilator. And, you know, the research is starting to catch up with this. George Dallam is a professor from one of the universities in the United States in terms of sports medicine. And he published a paper in 2018 looking at just 10 individuals. He asked them to breathe exclusively through their nose for during all physical exercise for six months. And then he tested them nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. When they breathed through their nose, they, had, they were able to achieve 100% work rate intensity, but with 22% less ventilation. In other words, you could run just as hard with nasal breathing as with mouth breathing, but with 22% less ventilation. The okay. fraction of expired oxygen was reduced with nasal breathing. In other words, the body utilized oxygen better. Carbon dioxide in the blood was higher with nasal breathing, but they didn't have that feeling of air hunger. 
and here is the thing, like, and again, you know, when we start focusing on our breathing and we start noticing that, yes, breathing is irregular, we're sighing a little bit more, we're upper chest breathing, we've got a little bit faster breathing. It's good to see that. It's good to be aware of that. And then you're practicing doing breath holding, slow breathing, reduced breathing. And, you know, in terms of learning all of the exercises, if people want to do it, and like I'm only going to offer an option is, I give two-hour masterclasses. They cost $95. You sit in in a small group of people. You get all of the exercises. You get all of the techniques, and you get the recording, and you practice it. And, you know, or you could buy a book for €6 or €10 or watch the children's exercises for free. So there's many options. There's, you know, anybody anybody who wants to change their breathing can do it. Yeah. And the benefits, I mean, in terms of physical physicality and also mental focus are just staggering. Um, before, yes. before we go, so I will link to all of that in the show notes and to your um, online masterclasses that you hold as well and, and the book. But before we go, what about just because something we haven't, and I think maybe people will be wondering this in their mind, is what about the environment? So I noticed we moved house actually just before lockdown and my son's breathing seems to be better. He seems more rested. Uh, since we moved house and in this house it's a more modern house and there definitely isn't any kind of mold it's well ventilated I think in the old house what's your feeling on that and also things like filters in the air what what can parents in particular because I know they'll be thinking about their kids here as well what can they look at environmentally to help with this and how much of an impact does it have like no question, you know, if you're, if you're breathing in air that's, that's, um, that's got particles that are going to trigger off an asthma attack or if there's mold in the air, of mm. course, that's going to contribute to symptoms. Cats can be very potent. Um, yes, in terms of, say, cats can be very, mm. very potent. But in terms of, from, a, from here again is mouth versus nose breathing. You know, you breathe through your nose, you don't take as much air into the body. So the load of the particle that you're taking into your body is less because your breathing is lighter and you also have a defense in terms of the airborne particles getting trapped in the nose before they're brought into the lungs. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's always best to avoid it. You know, you can improve your breathing patterns, which is going to improve your ability to tolerate that you don't have so much symptoms. Um, But, you know, fresh air is very, very important. And I would sooner have a window open having fresh air coming into a house. I think it's really, really important. I always make a habit, even during winter, to have a window slightly ajar. Same. And it's really, <laughs> it's really important. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the nicest things. I, I don't, I feel, I don't have so much air hunger, funnily enough, because I know you commenting on my breathing and the sign. When I have my window open, actually, this yes. at the moment there isn't one open in here, but the, uh, fresh air just makes it incredibly better. And um, yes. Isn't it right as well that walking in like the countryside, in the forest, you get better access to air quality, to more nitric oxide, things like that as well. So taking walks in nature is helpful for people and they can actually practice your exercises while walking. Yeah, totally. Like even doing, they could even used to go for a walk with slow breathing. Mm-hmm. And while you're going for a walk, you could have your hands either side while you, couldn't, you don't necessarily want to do it in public. But if you're kind of in a quiet place, you could have your hands either side of your lower two ribs and as you're breathing in, that your ribs are gently moving out. And as you're breathing out, your ribs are gently moving in. And in the process, not to take in too much air. So do a combination of light breathing, slow breathing, and deep breathing. Um, light breathing meaning that you're not taking as much air into your body as what you would normally do. 
slow breathing is that you're very softly slowing down the breath coming in and out of the body and deep breathing with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. We don't have to take a big breath to have a deep breath. You know, you tell somebody to take a deep breath and they take in this big breath that's activating the upper chest. That's a big breath. That's a shallow breath. We want deep breathing in the true sense of the word, deep breathing in terms of what a, um, an animal will do, deep breathing in terms of what a young infant baby will do, um, but not big breathing, not shallow breathing, not hard breathing. Again, something that we could do in nature. And why not? You know, nature is immersed in stillness and it's very good for the mind. Mm, absolutely. And, and for people that are overbreathing, like me, would you say that it's better to correct this breath um, using your methods before then doing something like Wim Hof style breathing, which is actually encouraging more overbreathing? Like, is it better to get I, can, I only have right. experience teaching what I teach mm. in terms of addressing breathing pattern disorders. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Like I know, I understand where the Wim Hof technique is. It's a stressor mm. and it's a stressor to cause adaptations to the body. Now we also do stress exercises, but we don't do the hyperventilation. But what we've talked about throughout this conversation here is, is improving everyday functional breathing patterns. Mm. And that's not, you know, so you have the Wim Hof as a stressor, which somebody might do once a day or whatever, if they do it twice a day. But I'm not just concerned with stressing the body to make adaptations. Like we have stress exercises too. But I'm more concerned with how is that person breathing during sleep? How is mm. that person breathing when they go for a run? How is that person breathing during the day? So you can do none of these, you can do all of these exercises. None of them are mutually exclusive. Mm. You could do the Wim Hof technique in the morning and then be observant of your, your everyday breathing. And also bear in mind that if you are hyperventilating, what is that doing to the body? You know, it's not increasing the blood oxygen saturation. It does increase the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma. It gets rid of a lot of carbon dioxide and um, it's a stressor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, be aware of it because sometimes people will have a belief that, oh, take 30, 40 big breaths that it's going to flood my body with oxygen, that oxygen is roaming freely throughout the body. That's not correct. Mm. No, as you say, it's a form of hormesis, isn't it? To yes. um, build resilience. That's um, Thank you so much, um, Patrick. I will be linking to all this, but please say where, where are the best places for people to go to find more of your content um, and to actually start practically using this? Um, I suppose based on the discussion we had, for parents with children, go to butekoclinic.com. So that's B-U-T-E-Y-K-O clinic.com. And uh, one of the, the, the articles that I've written there is butekoclinic.com forward slash crooked teeth. Mm -hmm. And then the children's free videos are all available from butecoclinic.com forward slash butecochildren. And then with that, then we have workshops to our masterclass or workshops for people with anxiety and panic. And then there's other workshops that I give for people with asthma and respiratory complaints. And then there's other workshops that I give for sleep disorder breathing. And that's one aspect. So buteco is all about health focused. Mm -hmm. And then the oxygen advantage is all about performance based in terms of stressing the body, getting into the zone, increasing oxygen uptake and oxygen delivery, um, doing breath holding to, to delay lactic acid and fatigue, for example. So 
Oxygen Advantage is all performance-based and Buteco Clinic is about, you know, if somebody has health issues and also for kids. Brilliant, brilliant. I will link to all of that. Um, and are you are you active on social? Can people find you there? Or is it best to yeah. go to your websites? To, to- uh, if, like in terms of the websites are always better. Like we're on Instagram. I Personally, I don't look after it myself because, you know, just it's a question of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, But yeah, we have Buteco Clinic on Instagram. And all of the videos, a lot of videos up on YouTube. And there's some helpful videos in terms of applications that people can practice straight away. You know, there's no reason for you to have a stuffy nose. There's no reason for you to be mouth breathing. If you get into a, an asthma attack, there's breath hold exercise to help stop coughing and wheezing um, under a Buteco clinic. So the, yeah, there's, there's helpful stuff on social media as well. We try and put it out there as much as we can. Brilliant. And, um, and also buy the book. It's a brilliant book as well. And that's so Thanks. easy, accessible. <laughs> really good. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for giving so much of your time today. Sure. You're welcome. Thanks, Angela. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.